Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be here this week looking at one of the key prophecies relating to the coming king as we think about Jesus the eternal king. Jesus the eternal king. What we're going to see together this morning in Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7 is that Jesus the Messiah brings a kingdom of eternal peace. He brings a kingdom of eternal peace. So I'll begin reading in Isaiah 9 verse 1. Would you read along with me? Isaiah writes, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. One day, several centuries after this, a traveler was traveling the road, a well-worn road from Jericho to Jerusalem. This is a common way that Jews would go from, sort of travel from Galilee in a roundabout way into Jerusalem. And as this traveler exited the gates of Jericho and he was heading toward Jerusalem, just as soon as he got outside the city gates, a man shouted at this traveler. This man was a beggar sitting by the side of the road, and when he heard this man and and perhaps the crowd passing with him, he shouted out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now perhaps you remember this story, that the beggar's name was Bartimaeus. Sometimes we call him Blind Bartimaeus because he was a blind man. And the traveler, of course, his name is Jesus. And as Jesus traveled this road, Bartimaeus shouted at him a rather unusual name, an unusual title for Jesus. He called him the Son of David. And in doing this, he was recognizing something about Jesus. You see, David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. And God had promised that one of David's sons would be a greater king. Great David's greater son would one day rule an eternal kingdom. And so for centuries, God's people had looked for this one, looked for this king to come. When Jesus healed Bartimaeus, he was demonstrating something about himself. He was demonstrating that he was the king. He was the one who was anticipated, the one who was looked for. So when Bartimaeus calls him son of David, he's recognizing Jesus' right to inherit David's throne. And when Jesus heals Bartimaeus, he's proving about himself that he is indeed the promised king. Now when people began looking for this king, they naturally looked for a king that was one like other kings they knew one who would deliver Israel from her earthly oppressors. Yet when this Messiah came, he was far different than they anticipated. He came not only to deliver them from earthly enemies, not only to deliver one nation, but to deliver all people, all nations, from all of God's enemies. 
So when the Messiah came, he came and he looked different than what they anticipated. Now what we've got here is a prophecy from Isaiah. Now Isaiah is a prophet who prophesied some eight centuries before Jesus was born. So that's 800 years. Now if you think about that in time, that feels short in, in Bible time, but it's really, really long. You know, our country is a couple hundred years and some change old. The children of Israel were in Egypt for 400 years. If you review back some 800 years, Genghis Khan is capturing China. Or the Crusades are going on in the Middle Ages. It's a very different world than the world we live in now. So Isaiah preaches eight centuries before Jesus appears, and he tells us what kind of king Jesus will be. What will this Messiah be like? And the first thing he tells us about is what the world is like without Jesus. What does Jesus' absence produce? This chapter starts with a remarkable statement in verse 1. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. You see, the first 12 chapters of Isaiah are a series of judgments against people for turning their back on the true God. Chapters 1 to 6 are judgments for for people. People who have sinned and thus turned to idolatry, turned away from the true God. Chapters 7 through 12 are judgments on God's leaders for leading the people toward sin rather than true God or to God. Well, if you look back just at the end of chapter 8, so look at 9-1 and look up one verse to verse 22. Isaiah prophesies this, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So without the Messiah, without Jesus, there's, there's darkness and hopelessness. But then verse 1 introduces us not only to darkness, but to another insight that Jesus is going to come, and he's going to bring hope to the land beyond the Jordan. And then there's this kind of curious phrase, Galilee of the nations. Well, the area described here, Galilee, if you've been walking with us through the book of Matthew, is a very common term. It's an area in the north of Israel, and it appears at least five other times in the Old Testament as well. But it's always called merely Galilee. Why here does Isaiah call it Galilee of the nations? Because Isaiah is cluing us into this truth, that this Messiah doesn't belong to one people, one nation. Rather, he's a deliverer for all people, for all nations. Isaiah 42.1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 49, verse 6, he will be a light for the nations that salvation may reach even to the end of the earth. Isaiah 60, verses 2 and 3, the Lord will arise and his glory will be seen and nations will come to his light. You see, the light of Christ isn't a light for one person or one nation. It's a light for all people. And the only qualification these people bring to this light is being utterly unqualified to receive the light. Jesus doesn't belong to a particular group. White, black, brown. He doesn't belong to a particular nation. America, England, Russia, China. So when you picture God's kingdom, picture a new kind of nation. A nation where all people gather for the worship of the Lamb. A place where prejudice doesn't exist because everyone worships the same king. God's promises are for us, but they're for all God's people. This is why we are committed to a global mission. This is why we are committed to the spread of the gospel among all peoples. Because the world without Jesus is a gloomy, dark place. That's why verse 2 says, That without Christ, people walk in darkness. They dwell in a land of deep darkness. 
So what is it that this Messiah does? Jesus reigns. Now imagine that Isaiah isn't writing words here. Imagine that instead he's painting a picture. So what he's just been painting is dark, gray, black, foreboding, maybe with pops of orange for the judgment of God. Well, now he takes some different colors. He takes some some pastels, some yellows, some pinks, some light blue, and he paints on this canvas hope. He splashes hope on top of this gloom and chaos because when this Messiah comes, he will bring with him light. The people that once lived in darkness now see, he says, a great light. Isaiah 60 says that the coming of the Messiah is like a sunrise. Arise and shine for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Jesus' coming is like that moment when you wake up early and it's dark. And then you begin to see light dawn on the horizon and the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, is like that moment when the sun pops over the horizon and for the first time you see the light clearly. The rising of the sun. Some 115 or 20 years ago, a man by the name of Sir Ernest Henry Shackleton led the first successful expedition to Antarctica. In his diary, he described the, uh, the obstacles that they faced along the way. 150 mile an hour plus winds. Temperatures that ranged more than 100 degrees below zero. 80 foot waves. So it's like being caught in the world's worst blizzard and worst hurricane at the same time. And yet he said, of all the obstacles they faced, perhaps the worst was the bone chilling darkness. He describes it this way. In all the world, there is no desolation more complete than the polar night. It's a return to the ice age. No warmth, no life, no movement. Only those who have experienced it can appreciate what it means to be without the sun day after day, week after week. Few men unaccustomed to it can fight off its effects, and it has driven some men mad. The world without light is a hopeless place. So brothers and sisters, don't let this light, don't let the light of Christ be merely the light of history. Enjoy and revel in the light that Jesus Christ brings to our hearts. It's why John Newton wrote of his experience, I once was blind, groping in darkness, but now I see. Where does blindness leave you? It leaves you like Bartimaeus beside the road begging for help. For us today, spiritual blindness leaves us groping in the darkness, looking for help anywhere, running to substances, running to placebos, running anything, looking for the light anywhere. You see, one thing we all have in common is that apart from Christ, we all are groping in darkness. Universal darkness leaves us all equally disadvantaged. Without Jesus, we can't see. And then in swoops Jesus, like the dawning of the sun, like the popping of the light over the horizon, Jesus comes and he brings light and hope. Suddenly, we're no longer groping. Suddenly, we're no longer stumbling around in the dark. Now, we can see clearly. We can run and jump. Imagine for a minute this morning that you couldn't see, and imagine making your way from your seat to the door. How hard does that very simple task become? You can't do it. Light reveals to you what you need to make your way through life. That's how the light of the gospel works. In John chapter 8, Jesus is going through a series of statements revealing himself to people. And he says, I am the light of the world. In other words, apart from Jesus, you can't see. But then in Matthew 5, and Jesus doesn't do this often, but he takes the title, he applies to himself, and he applies it to us. So in John 8, Jesus says, who's the light of the world? I am the light of the world. 
In Matthew chapter 5, who does Jesus say is the light of the world? You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And so what happens is this. Jesus, the light, shines into our hearts. And then through us, he shines the light of Christ to other people. So Jesus, the light, comes to us, and we are to take that light and shine it to others. God graciously gives the light to us, not so that we can hide it under a bushel, but so that we can shine that light to other people groping in darkness. But life is full of temptations to give in to darkness, isn't it? Like low-hanging clouds that you can see approaching on a stormy day, and you know what that means for, for that day, we can sense the creep of darkness and gloom in our own hearts can't we? You can sense the creep of anxiety, fear, and depression. So what do you do when you look at the horizon and there are clouds, and they're not imaginary clouds, they're real clouds. And maybe this horizon is in your mind and you can feel the creep, it gloomily drawing near. What do you do in that moment? Brothers and sisters, we must lean in to Christ. We must lean in to Jesus. Know the Christ of the word and cling to him. Know the Christ of the community of faith. Lean into the relationships in your local church. Hold on to the community for help because when darkness comes, the light of Christ is our only hope. Christ is no ordinary light. What kind of light does Isaiah say he is? He is a great light. When we can't see, it's not because the light isn't shining, it's because our eyes are dimmed by the cares of this world. It's because we're listening to all the voices around us. It's because we listen to the voices in our head. And, and God's word comes to us and says, Jesus is the light. Jesus brings comfort. Jesus brings peace. Jesus brings hope. Jesus brings joy. He brings all these things to us. So look to Jesus. If you are prone to darkness, and look, there are all kinds of people in the world, and there are some who it never even occurs to them to be discouraged and gloomy, and there are others of us that walk through life and feel like chicken little, the world's about to fall on our head. But no matter how you go through life, if you are prone to darkness, grab this verse and hold on to it like it's your only hope. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. On them, the light has shined. Jesus comes and he brings light and he also brings joy. Where there once was gloom and empty stomachs, there's now gladness and abundance. Look at verse three. The nation is multiplied. Joy is increased. There's rejoicing at the harvest. There's spoil to divide. In Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah had predicted that the Assyrian army would invade God's people and spoil them. And now he says that those who were spoiled have spoil to enjoy, the, the spoils of war. Where does all this come from? You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. This joy comes from the one who brings the light. This is why God's people sing, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive this king, because he brings joy with him. He also brings deliverance in verses 4 and 5. That's why there's joy. Those who were oppressed are now set free. He uses repetition to describe kind of the, the, the weight of this yoke, verse 4, the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor you have broken. God's people rejoice because God delivers them from oppression. There's a twofold fulfillment of this deliverance. 
First, Jesus delivers us from the oppression of sin, from the slave master of sin. Paul talks about this in Romans Romans 6. He says, you were slaves to sin, but now in Christ you have been set free from this yoke of bondage. You see, apart from Christ, we all are slaves to sin's rule in our lives. And Christ comes, and he uses kind of curious language in Matthew 11. He comes and he says that he has a yoke, he has has a burden for us, but he says, my yoke is what? easy and my burden is light. See, Christ is the best, most gracious master. Jesus Christ is eternal God and came to rule everything. Yet he himself, who rules everything, placed himself under the rule, under humiliated himself so that he might bear the penalty, the weight, the yoke of our bondage, the yoke of our sin, the yoke of our oppression, so that through Christ anyone might be delivered from these chains, delivered from this bondage. You see, the pleasures of this life whisper to us freedom, but in reality, they bring bondage. And in the end, this bondage is a bondage that can lead your soul to hell apart from being delivered through faith in Christ. Will you turn from your sin, from your love of self, from these chains and trust Jesus alone? So he said the first fulfillment is that Jesus delivers us from our chains to sin. But there is a second fulfillment coming. Because one day Jesus will come and he will deliver all God's people from oppression. He will crush his enemies. And what we do as God's people today is reflect this kind of gracious rule. So we're to be the kind of people who resist oppression wherever it is found because Jesus will come and in his coming he delivers us from oppression. It means that Christian kids at school ought to be the first people standing up to a bully. It means that when God's people go to the poll to vote or when God's people are in positions of leadership in our community, it means they think through, what does the king want? How do his policies, how do we live out God's will on earth as it is in heaven? It means that God's people care for the vulnerability of the unborn, for those who have no voice to raise their voice. It means that God's people care for the oppressed who are born, for those who have no voice, for those who are oppressed peoples whose voices go unheard. You see, God's people do this because we are all ex-slaves to sin. We're all freed from oppression. We declare that God delivers people from sin and that he will fully and finally deliver us all from all oppression. So we've seen how Jesus rules, how he reigns. How is it then, what is the character of this Messiah? And verses 6 and 7 reveal to us a series of truths about his coming. And the first thing we see is that he'll come as a child. Now, what does it mean to be a child? Now, we saw some evidence of that this morning. In fact, when when those kids left here, they leave here at a little quicker pace than y'all. I don't see most of y'all jogging out of the room or running out of the room. But we saw a bunch of people, and when all those kids came running out, you don't even think it's weird, right? If you're four, five, six, seven, eight, it's like you expect them to run. And there's, there's a characteristic innocence and joy that's part of being a child. But being a child can also be a little bit uncomfortable. Now, imagine that this morning that somehow something weird happened, and we no longer perceived you as an adult. We perceived you as a kid. And so when it's time to leave, rather than allowing you to leave freely on your own, we just pick you up and we bodily move you around. We kind of pass you from person to person. You know, there's a powerlessness that comes with being a child too, isn't there? There's like, in one sense, there's freedom from the cares of the world, but in another sense, there's bondage to all the adults around you. It's this weird mix of of innocence and joy, and on the other hand, like, 
I got no power, no privilege, I guess I'll do what mom and dad say. It's this mix. And Jesus entered the world like every other child. He's a great king who will rule all nations, and yet he's human. And to prove his humanity, he submits himself to the most basic rite of passage, birth itself. He passed through a birth canal. A son, Isaiah tells us, is born. And to complete the metaphor rather uncomfortably, he will have broad shoulders. Verse 6, this baby will bear the weight of governing. In verse 4, the Messiah frees our shoulders from oppression, and in verse 6, he willingly takes on him a great weight. Isaiah 22, 22 adds this to this, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. So like a royal garment that should be draped over the king's shoulders, Jesus bears the weight of governing the world. He may be wrapped in swaddling cloths, but he bears the mantle of a king, the authority to rule all nations. Then we come to a series of beautiful titles, really made famous by Handel's Messiah, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in these titles, we see promises of Jesus' character. Jesus is a wise king, a wonderful counselor. His advice literally inspires wonder. To those who find themselves in need of wisdom, Jesus offers himself as wisdom. It's that time, you're 17, 18 years old, you're graduating, and now you've got to figure out every big thing in life, and you have no idea what you want to do. You don't know where you want to go to school, what you want to study. Jesus offers himself as wisdom. You can't please your boss. You don't know how to lead your family, provide for your family. Jesus says, if you get me, you will get wisdom. He's a wonderful counselor. He's also mighty God. His power is evident in his titles. Mighty is a reference to Jesus as a warrior. God's people know the truth of Exodus 14, verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Do you ever have that, that feeling where someone criticizes you and what's your response? You want to get defensive, but I, you kind of want to stand up for yourself. But God's people can look to Jesus, the warrior king. He will fight for you. But Jesus isn't just a warrior. He's a God who cares. He's an everlasting father. Now, this image is a little bit strange. Why is that? Because we're talking about the son, this is the son, and yet Isaiah says he's going to be an eternal father. Why is Jesus called a father? Because father throughout scripture is pointing to the compassionate care of God for his children. And Jesus, like the best father, cares for the helpless. He looks out for his children. So get these two pictures. You've got Jesus, the mighty God, the warrior, and you've got Jesus, the everlasting father. Jesus is the strongest warrior who fights our enemies for us. And yet he's a perfect father who cares for us with compassion. So when you're afraid and alone, you can look to Jesus, who's also an everlasting father. And Jesus' rule produces shalom, peace, wholeness as the prince of peace. And it's here, really, that Isaiah reaches the climax of these four titles. Isaiah 32, 17 says, The effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness is quietness and trust forever. I mean, what an amazing picture this is. The warrior God is a father who brings peace. 
Well, isn't that what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5? Therefore, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace isn't merely the absence of conflict. It's a wholeness. It's a completion that we find in Jesus and nowhere else. Are you someone who loves to, to chew on things, and you, you call it thinking, but it's really worrying? You worry about stuff? Look to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Maybe you've walked through life, and the thing that you worry about most is your failures as a parent. You wish your kids were different. You wish maybe something had turned out differently, or you're just crushed by the ways that you're failing now and caring for your kids. And what Isaiah tells us is that if we run to Christ, he brings us peace with God and offers peace in the midst of life's storms. He is a prince of peace. And ultimately, Jesus is an eternal king. So what's this passage about? It's about the first coming of Jesus. But ultimately, it's not going to be finally fulfilled until the end of all things. You see, the blessings that Jesus' first coming bring expand and grow until the end of all things. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's not just that Jesus comes and he reigns, it's that his reign grows and grows and grows and grows. It means that the peace of God comes to us through God's Spirit personally. It gets better and better. This is because the words of Bartimaeus are true. The son of David is here. And this son is David's greater son, the greater king, who will rule God's people fully and finally and never fail. That's why Isaiah says he will sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and how long? Forevermore. This reign will never end. Emmanuel, God is with us and he is ruling all things. The truer and better David is here. David committed adultery to satisfy his whims. We know from the New Testament that Jesus spent time with prostitutes and sinners. He had never had one impure thought. David killed a friend to cover up his sin. Jesus, the innocent, was murdered by guilty men to cover their sins in his blood. David, the shepherd, watched a few sheep in the wilderness. Jesus, the best shepherd, the good shepherd, keeps all his sheep in the palm of his hand and never lets one go. He brings a kingdom of eternal peace. Well, if you know anything about this world, that kind of kingdom is impossible. So how does this happen? Look at the last phrase of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The God of heaven, this title says the Lord of hosts, is the Lord of armies. He is passionately concerned for his creation and the good of his people. He is zealous to see an eternal, glorious kingdom come, reigning over all things. And if this is true, gloriously and finally, it's true for us too. Do not doubt the good purposes of God. This God who is accomplishing good eternally, gloriously, cosmically, and finally is also working good in your life. This is what Romans 8 promises us, that the one who does these things works all things together for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God is working good in your life. 
So when you look and you see darkness, when you see gloom, what's the answer? The answer is to look to Christ. He is restoring and will restore all things through Christ, including the mess that we make of our lives. So embrace this child. To us, a child is born. To us, to us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the promised son of David, and he is our promised king. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then we'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.